Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. When we started Behavior Groups more than three years ago, we had some simple desires. We wanted to talk to great researchers, clever authors, and practitioners who are doing cool work, all in the behavioral science space. We've recorded more than 200 episodes with guests from India, Australia, Singapore, Iran, the EU, the UK, Kenya, South Africa, Canada, and a few from the United States. And we're (laughs) not even close to feeling like we've got this covered. I couldn't agree more, Kurt. You know, with all these great guests that we've had, we still feel a sense that there is so much more territory to cover, more ideas to explore, more research to share, more applications to discuss, and frankly, more conversations to have. We have much more to do, and we hope you'll be going along on that journey with us. Yeah, oh, that's absolutely right. If you're a listener that checks out Behavior Grooves all the time, consider jumping over to our Patreon page uh, where we have subscriptions, and you could subscribe for $1,000 per month. Wait, 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 Tim. Tim, we don't even have a $1,000 a month level. At that level, we'd be asking them to move in with us. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about the $750 a month level? Okay. Are you crazy? <laughs> we, how about we ask our listeners to subscribe to something like a 6 or a $12 level a month? Okay. Uh, actually, um, the maybe the most important thing is to simply find a level of subscription that's right for you. We have lots and lots of fun levels to choose from. And of course, we appreciate your support. Yeah, that's that's the right message. I'm starting to feel like we're NPR at our winter, <laughs> you know. Donor drive. Donor drive. But, you know, there there is something to be said here. And so choose the level that's right for you. And thank you for all of you who are already subscribers. We really appreciate the help. Okay, so now how about we turn our attention to our amazing guest for this episode? That sounds great, Tim. Who is this cool person and what will we be talking about with them? (laughs) I'm glad you're so excited. In this episode, we feature a conversation that we have with Linda Linda Toonstrom. And Linda is Swedish, which you're going to hear in her lovely accent. But she's an assistant professor of economics at the University of Wyoming. Uh, By the way, that's in Laramie, Wyoming, not Wyoming, Sweden. Good. Thank you. Thank you for expressing that. Yeah. And her research interests include behavioral, experimental, public, and health economics. Very cool stuff. Yeah. And even cooler, she was referred to us by Andrea Monberg, a guest from episode 199. Oh, yeah. And uh, Linda has family connections to Minnesota, where we live. Uh, Her husband is a singer-songwriter. Like, we're just connecting on all levels here. Ah, true that. But more important than all that is that the research we discussed with Linda, we t- started talking with Linda about some research she conducted after Hurricane Florence. She was curious about the effect that offering thoughts and prayers might have on potential donors to natural disasters. So she set up a study to see if someone might feel like they don't need to make a monetary donation to the victims if they've already offered up some thoughts and prayers. She also looked at the question from the recipient's end, and as an economist, she framed the study in monetary terms and wondered if people might take less money in a donation if they knew that someone was praying for them, like a Christian stranger or a priest. The results she got were pretty amazing. Now, you're going to have to listen to see what she found out. Definitely, Kurt. Uh, Her results surprised me quite a bit, actually. And we also talked about willful ignorance and the role that that plays in our decision-making. Oh, when you're talking about willful ignorance, you're talking about that thing I do when I go down to the basement to get Coke Zero and I just happen to discover a box of Oreo cookies. And at the very moment I decide now is probably a pretty good time to have one or two or three, right? Is that willful ignorance? (laughs) Well, as long as you don't read the label. On the Oreo box, I think I think that's that would work. Yeah, <laughs> I never read labels on Oreo boxes. That's just that that would not do. Um, there you go. That would spoil it for me. And okay, so good. why do that, right? <laughs> yeah, good. And that's just some of the cool stuff that you'll hear in our conversation. So right now, we invite you to sit back and relax with a two finger pour of willful ignorance and an Oreo cookie or two. And enjoy our conversation with Linda Toonstrom. Linda Toonstrom, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. 
Thank you so much for having me, Tim and Kurt. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful to be here. Well, that's so great. We are excited to have you here all the way from Laramie, Wyoming. So we're going to get started with a little speed round. And we want to ask you, with Swedish meatballs, do you prefer lingonberries or potato pancakes? Oh, lingonberries. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So if you travel back when we can travel, hopefully sometime in the near future, do you travel on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Fixed itinerary. No. Okay. We might have to explore that later. Okay. So if you were to be able to have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite sports star, who would it be? Which one would it be? A favorite musician or a favorite sports star? My husband, Jay Shogren, my favorite musician. <laughs> wow. Love that. Love that. That's going to be a fantastic conversation. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in the musical section of this that Tim always leads. All right. Last speed round question, Linda. After a catastrophic event, would I be more likely to make a donation if I just offered my thoughts to those who were affected or if I offered prayers to them? If you just offered your thoughts. Yeah, because this is some interesting Great. research that you have done. Mm -hmm. So. Why don't you explain a little bit about uh, what you found and what the research was about and what were you were trying to, to achieve with that? Yeah, the, uh, so the research um, is about, you know, the effect of thoughts and prayers on charity donations. And the reason I started thinking about it is because I, you know, I observe this debate as we all do after every catastrophe that we go through. People send their thoughts and prayers to the victims. And this can be you know, mass shootings or natural disasters. or And then we have this debate about whether those gestures are really meaningful or not. And um, some people argue that they are, and other people argue that, you know, they're sort of empty gestures that might even take away from structural reform or, or other types of material help. So, um, and nobody had ever looked into that. And there's such frequently used gestures that, I thought that was actually really important. Um, so, yeah, I designed a study, an experiment, where I asked people to think about victims of the natural catastrophe, and then after that, they could donate or pray for the victims, and then they were asked to donate after that, or they were never asked to to think or or pray, and and um, and then I could compare the the donations across those conditions. Um, and it's important to, to note that these are strangers. So they were asked to to think or pray for strangers. The results might be different if these are, you know, if the short, social distance is shorter um, and the gestures might feel more meaningful to recipients if the social distance is shorter and so on. But in this particular context, I found that prayers specifically crowd out donations. And um, the reason for that, at least that is my theory, and, and there is some, you know, there's a literature to, to support that as well, is that people perceive prayers as meaningful, that they might actually make a difference to those who receive the prayers. And hence, they become a substitute for other types of material help. And we have a follow-up study on that as well, where instead of prompting people uh, to think or pray, they get to choose what they want to do. They can donate only, or they can think and pray and donate, or they can pray and donate, and 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 so on. And the results in that study are, are actually even more or stronger. And their thoughts also crowd out donations. So thoughts in that, in that instance crowd out donations as well, yeah. not just prayers. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Okay. You've also found, if I if I recall, that something like eighty percent, roughly eighty percent of all Christians believe that God's going to hear their prayers, but that there's different kinds of categories that they believe sort of efficacy, if you will, right? Uh, right? Whether it's health or wealth or emotional support, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this is actually brand new research, and it's not yet published. Where we're it's still in the midst of writing it up. Uh, it's it's joint work with Shiri Noy at Denison University, and um, what we find there in that data is that it's the emotional support that is most important to people. So if you're a recipient of the prayer, what you value the most uh, is the emotional support. And but there are you know certain a, a fair. Uh, share two of recipients who expect 
um, health benefits or wealth benefits to be generated by the prayers, but primarily the emotional support. Yeah. So uh, what got you interested in this? Oh, but it's so fascinating. I mean, it's, 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 uh, right. yeah. Relig- First of all, you know, religion is, is quite a big part of U.S. society. And to me, that was uh, new because I came here from Sweden 10 years ago and Sweden is a highly secularized society. Um, but, but religion, even living in Sweden always fascinated me. And I think it, it, it does so much for so many people, you know, the, the giving hope, giving uh, meaning and, and so on. Um, but of course, you know, it also in some ways alienates people from each other across religions and, and um, being able as humans, you know, to think about things or believe in things that we've never seen, but we're still so convinced that they exist. And, you know, I, I think it's just a, it's a, um, Super interesting part of our society. Uh, so, yeah, I there there are other things about religion that I would like to study as well, and um, not just the prayers, but but how we interact across religions. And and we done a study recently on trust across religions. And and now you know we have a very fast growing group of non-religious and non-believers, atheists and agnostics. So what does that mean to society you know when when that group is growing and yeah we we did an interview with eric oliver from the university of chicago right tim or was it northwestern i can't remember university Uh, of chicago yeah university of chicago and and he had the you know was talking about um conspiracy theories and this idea that conspiracy theories and looking at what causes them and and kind of seeing if there's any uh, relationship to various different things and one of the things that he found is that you know highly evangelical uh, people are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And again, some of the the hypothesis behind that is this element of magical thinking and saying that, you know, there are these powers beyond us that are impacting various different pieces and uh, relating that with with very highly religious folks who are are in those those areas. And again, to your point, it's fascinating uh, that the way that somebody processes those types of of pieces of information and and how it gets interpreted within them, as you as you mentioned, even in just this emotional support aspect, but also some people were, were expecting wealth and health benefits of of, a, of somebody else praying for them. So th- those are those are really interesting topics um, as, as we're going forward and in yeah. this world and in today. I think they're really important because again, there's a difference between some of the secular components and, and those non-religious folks versus the the belief systems that mm-hmm. have there. And, and they're not always compatible. Yeah, I agree. Cool that he said that, you know, that, that's an interesting finding that conspiracy theories too could be, you know, linked to, to higher beliefs in, in, or magical thinking, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting that you move to the United States, which is, supposed to separate uh, you know uh, church and state right that's the that's the, the the classic constitutional aspect of of having religion being separate from politics and yet we see religion deeply uh, embedded in in political perspectives mm-hmm. um, and is it is it that radically different than uh, than life in Sweden it is that radically different. Um, I remember having a conversation with my sister who lives in Norway and uh, I mean, she's Swedish too and Norway and Sweden are so similar. Um, and she said, it's so funny when you hear these American presidents say, God bless America, as if they really believe that God exists. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, actually, they, they probably do. Um, and and that is, it's, it's that surprising, you know, that because... You, know, you would never hear a Swedish prime minister say something like that um, yeah. because religion is just not prevalent in society to the same extent. It's interesting. And and, and you moved to, to Wyoming, which is mm-hmm. you know probably a little bit more religious than, say, maybe some of the major metropolitan areas, the East Coast or West Coast of the United States. But still, I think it is a general component across the, across the board, America versus 
some of the uh, definitely the northern European countries uh, where you see re- religiosity being a little not as as prevalent w- uh, across the the piece. I wanted to go in. Um, so you you studied obviously donations and prayers and different pieces. I don't know if if you covered any of this within that research. Is how do people the the, the recipients of the prayers or the recipients of the donations? How do they feel about? either or? I mean, did you study like what people felt by receiving just prayers? Did they feel better about that? Did they feel better about actually getting a donation and going, yeah, this is this is meaningful to me? Or did they feel like, no, the prayer is good because it's that emotional support that I get? Yeah, so we did, at least partly, um, because we, we have a study too. So this is also joint work with Shirin Noy at Denison University, where we asked for people's willingness to pay for prayers, thoughts and prayers in the wake of a catastrophe. Yeah, um, and we found that, you know, Christians in general, so we looked across Christians and atheist agnostic, we lumped them together, um, and then Christians and, and um you know, we found that Christians are typically willing to to pay. So that would mean abstain an amount that they otherwise would have gotten in support of their hardship. That's how we framed it. Um, you can you can abstain some of this amount of money. So this is now an incentivized study with real money in return for receiving either a prayer um, or a thought from a Christian stranger or from a priest. Oh. Um, and yeah, so we had a local... Um, piece that we that we involved in this work and he actually prayed for the people who um in the experiment then received a a prayer and um we found that people are willing to give up material help and so it is meaningful the gesture in itself is meaningful to the extent that you know i'm i yeah i appreciate it more than than at least some material help yeah, so let, let's just uh, make sure that our listeners understand. Uh, in the in the experiment, you're offering people money and saying, "Would you take uh, X amount of dollars?" But it, would you take less in exchange for having someone pray for you that is a stranger versus having a priest pray for you versus just having having someone give you good thoughts? That is basically the setup. Um, so we, but they were um, in different treatments. All of them. So. You had one treatment that was asked, you know, you could give up some of your money in return for this prayer from the priest and, the, and then a different treatment where they could give up some money in return from a prayer from a Christian stranger and then a thought from a Christian stranger. Um, and yeah, and then we could see that the atheists and agnostics actually had a negative willingness to pay. They were prayer averse. So they were, were willing to give up money not to be prayed for. <laughs> <laughs> not to be, yeah, the, the, yeah, not to be prayed the, for. Yeah, there you go. They're saying, "I'll actually give you some of my money if you don't pray for me." That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it it goes both ways on this. So so did you find that they had different values for people for thoughts for prayers from a Christian stranger or thoughts from a a, a priest? Yeah, so we found a general trend of that. Uh, Our sample size was probably too small for us to catch that properly statistically. But generally, for sure, the the value of um, the prayer from the priest was higher. And he was not surprised about that. He did not agree with it. He said that I see this all the time. um, And it's as if people believe that my prayer is going to be more powerful, that I'm closer to God. And he said, I'm trying to tell people that that's not the case, but but he, he says he, he experiences people asking him for, you know, to pray for family members or pray for them and as if that would be more powerful than if it was just somebody else that is part of the church. That doesn't surprise me uh, yeah. that, the, uh, that the priest observes this. It does surprise me that he doesn't agree with it because it feels like religious institutions do a, a very good job of saying holy sites, this is a holy site, there's more holiness in this particular location than there is somewhere else. You know, if you're on, you know, Fourth Avenue, that's just blah, blah, blah. But if you're on Seventh Avenue at St. Patrick's Cathedral, well, there's, it's, there's more holiness there. So the, the fact that they differentiate between locations, I, I can easily see there, and and certainly having, you know, they they sell the story of, of having the Pope pray for you is going to be a bigger deal than having anyone else. So, uh, 
I guess that's I a good really point. Know. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's and uh, maybe he's unique, or you know, <laughs> there, there's heterogeneity across. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's Tim's Catholic upbringing that, that yeah. is, is being played out here. So yes, it is. Let's let's move on. I want to I want to talk. You've done some other research that is on willful willful ignorance. Can mm-hmm. can you explain a little bit about a what is willful ignorance, and then what are some of the studies that you've done about that? That would be great. Right. Yeah, so willful ignorance is when we deliberately choose not to know about things. And then that ignorance uh, oftentimes can be used strategically so we can do things that we otherwise would not have done. Uh, and uh, the, the reason I started thinking about that was I, I came across this study by Dana Raw from, from 2007, and they talk about how people might be ignorant about the consequences of their own actions on other people. Um, and I thought, you know, sort of similar to the Andrea story, perhaps, but in a much, much smaller scale, um, I was thinking, that's what I do to myself with ice cream eating. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if, if somebody asks me, do you want to know how many calories are in the, is, is in that jar of ice cream before I eat it? I'm like, no, of course not. <laughs> that would ruin it. Either, you know, it, either I can't eat it or I have to eat less than I was planning on doing or, or I'm going to eat it with a sense of guilt. So it ruins the pleasure of it. Um, so, so then, uh, you know, I, I started thinking about that sort of in, in different contexts. So we did an experiment on that where we looked at how, if people wanted to know the calories in food. I mean, you could apply this to other risks as well. Um, you know, do you, do you in, the, in the heat of the moment, do you want to know about the risks associated with your actions? Uh, but it's, it's easier to get it past the ethics committee if you're trying it out on calories rather than other types of risky behavior. So, so, um, so we did it on meals and meal consumption. Um, and ready meals in general are very non-transparent in caloric content. So they were a good um, sort of good to use in our study for that sense. We could vary the amount of calories a lot without that being transparent to, to consumers. So then they could choose whether they wanted to know the actual calorie content or not. And in the first study we found, so that was, was done in Stockholm, and we found that about 60% of people did not want to know the calorie content. And um, that caused overconsumption of calories compared to if we forced them to take the, the calorie content. Right? So, so the idea being then that you're using that, ignor- that ignorant strategically to enable yourself to to make more risky choices. And in this case, then eat more calories. I am fully with you on the ice cream. Yeah. I'm 100% <laughs> with you on, on ice cream consumption. You should not know calories of ice cream. It's just, it's, it's, it's a, 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 I am willfully ignorant of that. Actually, I've started to make my own ice cream, which I can't, it's way too much work to even try to figure out how many calories are in there. So of course. it's just, no way. I, I, it's not scientifically it. possible, so why even go there? Exactly. It's a lot of math. It's a lot of math, and I'm not that good with math. So there you go. Yeah. Was that a reason you started making your own ice cream? <laughs> no, but it's a really good rationalization yeah. after the fact. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, so so this is really interesting. So this goes beyond – obviously, you were studying food and, and calorie consumption on this, but – this really is a is a larger issue. This is this is goes into elements of risk, whether it be as you mentioned, um, uh, uh, Andrea, who who we did a uh, interview with before on on the risks of of going um, and avalanche dangers in various different pieces, and also talking about sexual you know promiscuity and and not using a condom or or using condom or protection and other various different things. So this goes well beyond just food, right? Yeah. It does. I mean, we we haven't tested it in other circumstances, but but um, I I would be surprised if it doesn't. Yeah, yeah the, the, we're we're going to be uh, intentional. We're willing to be intentional about avoiding facts that would get in the way of us making an indulgent decision. Exactly. And as economists, we this is very new to us, um, which you know to some extent, of course, is surprising, but. But economic theory, well, expected utility theory in general, I guess, has you know, sort of had this, or embeds this idea of that people should never ignore information that might change their choices. 
So in that sense, might be instrumental to them. Um, and so there is now a new body of research. I mean, our studies are part of that, that says, but that is not actually true. There are different reasons for people. When we start embedding emotions into those models, for instance, you know, there, there are other reasons where we could actually find that people deliberately choose to ignore information, which, you know, we previously did not think that people would do. Yeah, there's uh, good research on people who have ha suffered uh, brain injuries who have lost, uh, you know, access to sort of the more emotional parts of their brain that they make better financial decisions when it comes to investing. They, when when we remove the the emotion from financial decision making, investment opportunities that we're more likely to uh, improve our our investment decisions. Um, I I think that there's a you know. Is that is that a fair analog? For Absolutely, that's a perfect analog. Uh, well, that's that's fascinating, and and it is you know oftentimes in the models, the mathematical models that we construct to go with this research, we we make that distinction. We we assume that the emotional decision making is causing us to make biased decisions, whereas the deliberative thinking you know is that um, that takes a bit of effort. So. Uh, George Lowenstein has some really good work on on this as well, um, where you know they de they developed models to to illustrate this behavior, where the deliberative thinking is is sort of, as you say, makes you makes makes you make better decisions, but it comes at a cost because you have to override those emotions. I, yeah, I I just really love this idea that you framed th uh, this ability that we have to intentionally avoid information that might help us make a better decision is not so much being a bad thing, right? There are good aspects of it. And I think that this, I, I like, Kurt and I have talked about this recently, that there's a trend in behavioral science to not so much label a bias that we have as necessarily being a bad thing. It's not some foible. It's not some trouble spot that we have to look out for. There might be good evolutionary reasons to have that uh, particular bias. Yeah, and I think the other part, is we, we talk about it from things are being labeled irrational versus rational, and we think that that is probably moving, we're moving away from that as as a field. I think that's probably a good thing. But also, I was really fascinated to, to your talk of the, the idea that expected utility theory, and, and I think where we're economics got wrong. My my undergrad is in economics. And so I have a little bit of, of information on this, not much, um, but a little bit. But I think where, where, where economics kind of went off the, the rails is taking the emotion out of that, where I think a lot of that work was saying, oh, no, we have to take all of that that stuff that we can't measure easy, that isn't there, that we just look for perfect information, as you said, um, and taking out the emotion aspect from a utility function is where, you know, behavioral economics actually came back in and said, look, you can't take that. If you're actually looking at human behavior, human behavior is driven to a great extent by that emotion, as opposed to just our rational side of things. And so if you take that out, you're not really studying human behavior. You're, you're just studying, you know, a, a fantasy world. And that is where I think, uh, what I'm hearing you say, and what I, we're seeing kind of in some of the other behavioral science aspects is we're getting, we're, we're taking a different viewpoint of that. And we're saying, no, we need to add that emotion back in because my utility is not just the function of the outcome, but it's the function of uh, the emotional cost or benefit that I get from that as well. It's not just the hard economic outcome on the, uh, the at the back end. I love that. <laughs> I want to quote that. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no, but it's it it really is so true. And uh, and I you know and that's the whole field of behavioral economics is is trying to to do better in that sense. So so that's yeah. No, it's it's a very fair. I think assessment of where economics has been, and and I also love your idea of, or you know, that we are moving away from rational and irrational. And given that you're exposed to so many people and your own backgrounds, and and that you get to hear this, because I think that is so important too. I think we're a little bit as economists still we're sort of struggling with how do we do this? Um, if if the deliberative say choice now. We, you know, it's easier in a model to say that is the rational choice. 
And if you deviate from that, then you're irrational. You're responding to emotions, and that's irrational. And and I and um and I don't think that is true. And I think you're absolutely right that emotions also help us, and they make us take you know help us make quicker decisions and and take shortcuts. And where you can't make those deliberative decisions that we as economists oftentimes imagine that people do with full information, thinking through all the alternatives property, properly. I mean, thinking through the future. I mean, it's it's uh, so those emotions are really helpful. In, in making decisions, um, would it be better if we completely thought through all the alternatives and could solve a, an economic model in that sense? Maybe, but we can't. Well, it goes back to our ice cream problem, right? So how do you measure the guilt that I feel when I know the calories in an, in an ice cream cone that's two scoops instead of one and how much do I vary that all of those factors and it just yeah. gets very convoluted and I'm sure there's probably some at some point in in the future and better measurement tools and various different things we might be able to get there but it's just really hard in order yeah. to do that and so it's much easier to just say no if, if you're you know concerned about your health the probably shouldn't be eating that two scoops of Rocky Road and, you know, buttercrunch caramel and, and then, you know, having that, you know, so. but I'm going, but the, but the emotional joy that I get from that, that outweighs that, that long-term future, you yeah. know, uh, health concern as, and, and again, there's lots of reasons for that. And that, I think that's the really interesting part of, of some of this research is looking at, all right, so do we have, you know, time discounting fa factors and how does that play in and all of those elements of, you know, future value versus present value versus the emotional side of things. So, so with that, <laughs> I, I also know that you're doing some research right now on, on the pandemic and in particular about willingness for vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's really important, uh, particularly as we're at the end of January when we're doing this interview, vaccines have been out in the United States for about a month and the uptake has been slow, not always because of people's preferences, but because of other factors, but also preferences are coming in and, and people's willingness to be vaccinated. And what, what are you finding? So we we the, the first study we did on this um, was in, in the beginning of the year two um, or sorry last year we we were working on a project where we were going to look at he hesitancy towards a measles vaccine and then when the COVID pandemic hit then we you know we realized that oh, oh goodness I mean it's it's going to be the same factors here that play in for for a vaccine against the coronavirus as well most likely. Um, so we shifted that project very quickly towards looking at vaccines for the coronavirus as well then. And this is a group of people. It's David Finoff, Steve Newbold, Madison Ashworth, uh, and lately also Todd Cherry here at Wyoming. So we're working together on a, on a, on a set of studies that pertains to this. And we find that you know, around 20% of the population, this was now again back in the beginning of last year, so March, uh, end of March, said that they were unwilling to vaccinate. We know that since the uh, since that date, the willingness to vaccinate seems to have declined even further. Um, and, you know, we, we find a big correlation between general vaccine hesitancy if you had a flu shot in the last two years, you are, you're more likely to take the vaccine. If you have confidence in vaccines in general, you're more likely to take the vaccine. Um, and, um, you know, of course, if you're sort of a hardcore anti-vaxxer, you are, you are um, not very likely to take the vaccine. So, so, yeah, and currently, as you said, I mean, we have problems getting the vaccines out. Um, we might not have hit the groups that are the most reluctant to taking the vaccines yet because the vaccine is in such short supply still that most people who, who you know, want to get vaccinated can get those doses. But eventually here, we're probably going to hit a spot where it gets harder and harder to get people to vaccinate. And then we've done a recent study that is led by our PhD student, Maddie, Madison Ashworth and and she where we've looked at different information messages and whether those affect people's intentions to vaccinate. So 
if we talk about the benefit to your private health, if we talk about the benefit to the health of others, or if we talk about the benefit to the economy, um, you know, we can we can get the economy going sooner if we get this over with quicker. Uh, and we can see that all of those information um, treatments seem to have some effect, uh, but very preliminary results that she has just started to to analyze would show that the private message might be more most effective. So, um, which you know isn't always what we found in the literature on COVID so far. When it comes to mask wearing and social distancing, there's been a very big social component um, that has driven people's willingness to do that. Tell yeah, tell us about that if, if you would just just a. a um, if you could tell us about what is the private message that looks like it might be leading toward having a greater effect on uh, on vaccination willingness. Right. So the private message, I can't remember exactly how we phrased it, but, but it speaks to that this will benefit you uh, personally. If you take the vaccine, you're less likely to catch the coronavirus and the coronavirus has been found to, you know, be... Um, to be deadly for some people and otherwise cause, you know, X amount of, of um, negative health effects, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it, as you mentioned, uh, we, we talked with a couple other uh, people who are studying some of the messaging around this. Andy Luttrell was one in kind of mask wearing, and he was looking at uh, moral messaging versus just data messaging. So again, tying into people's moral beliefs, this idea of you're serving your country or you're protecting others and, yeah. and those types of messages he found had a more impact than just, you know, do this to, to keep yourself safe. Right. And so, so tying into that. And again, that was on mask wearing. And then we had uh, Christina Bicchieri and she did a really interesting research on, on belief systems around, you know, uh, trust in science and trust in government. Uh, but again, the messaging was uh, around uh, others and different pieces, and those seem to, to work better. So, so what is it about the vaccine? I mean, and again, I know this is preliminary and you probably haven't done this, but do you have thoughts, just guesses, hypothesis about why that individual health message is more important? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, we, we're only speculating at this point because we that's, also- That's fine. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's always and great. Our, our researchers are always really hesitant because I'm just, this is my opinion and it's not based yeah, on anything, but yeah. th that's okay. We're, we're, we're not a peer reviewed journal here. So no, we're, we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you, spontaneously, you'd think that it'd be something along the lines of that you know, the vaccine is is considered so important to your health. I mean, it's because it's not like the, the public message here is ignored by people, um, but the, the private message is more powerful in this particular situation. So it might be that people perceive the health benefit to themselves to be bigger um, in, you know, from the vaccine. And it's, it's, it's only speculation is that the cost, um, you think too, I mean, if you think about, okay, what does it mean if I get vaccinated versus if I need to wear a mask or socially distance? I mean, the, the, the costs are fairly large for the social distancing and, and the mask wearing is perhaps not so much, but, but it, I, I would assume that it's on the benefit side that we see the differences. Yeah. And if I'm reminded by that, and I'm going to be more inclined to to take the vaccine. I mean, we were surprised in a way because we'd also done a study earlier um, in 2020 on on willingness to test, and there we found also just like the researchers that you just mentioned that it was the social motivation that was the strongest for for going to take a test. I wanted to protect other people, and actually the ones that we thought you know, that we defined as super spreaders, potential super spreaders. So the people who are extroverts and thrive the most in social settings, they were the most likely to go test, um, which we were afraid that they would be the least likely because the cost would be the highest to them from self-isolating if they got a positive response. So there was a, definitely a social component there. And I guess we were expecting that one to dominate for the vaccines too, but that's not what we find. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. And I, I know the research is just at that preliminary kind of uh, mm-hmm. analysis part, but uh, looking at subgroups, right? Are there are there subgroups that are more likely to take the, the economic message? And I'm thinking about people who are maybe denying you know, and and again, I don't know if you're looking at any of this, but but you know, deniers that this is even you know more deadly than the flu, and you hear all of those stories out there, but but they actually see that there's an economic impact. So does that does that economic message work better with them versus the the individual health message? Uh, those would be interesting facets, I think, to to look into and and to just see. And I, you know, it's not surprising to me that that we have this large of a uh, unwillingness to 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 vaccinate, given you know the the past history of of anti-vaxxers and different things, I was at one point a little bit hopeful that because of the severity of the pandemic, that that might actually switch some people's perceptions around this and actually get them on board. Uh, yeah. But I think actually the opposite has happened, and and which is you know not positive in my opinion, but it is what it is. And I think it's just it, uh, the research I think that you're doing is, is really important because it can help us in actually making a difference in how, mm-hmm. how these people are, are messaged. So it's, it is time in our conversation to turn over to music and we're going to have to start with your favorite musician, the one who lives in your own household. Yes. Tell us about your husband and, and his musical adventure. Yeah. So he is both a musician and an economist. Um, so, so, yeah, like, pretty but, much like all of them are. Pretty much every musician I know is already an economist. So that's not very different. Than that. That's because they 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 don't make any money at their at, at, in the music, and they have to be able to you know know yeah, about money. Yeah. I know, and it's it's. But we were talking about it the other day because we're doing some studies on risk taking. So, um, and this is uh, George Lowenstein and and um. Uh, ben Gilbert uh, and 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 I and we were you know thinking about people's willingness to take risk and then I had a conversation with my husband Jay Shogren about you know about his willingness to take risk and he said I you know what I am I wish I would have taken more risk I wish I wouldn't have gone into the economics profession I wish I wish I just would have done music uh, and I thought that was very interesting and and. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that choice, given it. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Um, but uh, but yeah. So he he has had a sort of spotty musician career. You know, he did a lot of music when he was younger, and then he he is a very accomplished economist. So he spent you know a couple of decades on just economics, and then now he's back to music again and is is he has his own band Jay Shogun the Shanghai and he's playing in different bands as well and oh it's awesome music what kind like of, what yeah give it yeah. give us give us a, a a feel for what kind of music he's creating oh uh, yeah so he is a very creative guy I cannot really pinpoint his music I thought it was interesting he said he just came out with a new album and one of his friends had said you know it, it sounds like David Bowie and I was like, Bowie? What? Because you know, it's more like American, you know, folk music, Americana. That has sort of been where he started, and then rock, and the so it's it's very, it changes between albums and shows and the constellation of musicians that he's playing with. And so it's, it's hard to pinpoint the music exactly. Where Where is Jay from? Did, did he grow up in Sweden? He grew up in Minnesota, so not too far from you are. So yeah, he was born in Choquet, and then he lived in Duluth. Uh, uh, yeah, and eventually, you know, he, he's been to been in different parts of the country and ended up in Wyoming and loved it here and has been here for the last couple of decades. Yeah, that that's fantastic. That was a setup, actually. <laughs> that question was a setup. I knew the answer to that one. Um, but uh, I, I love the idea that he's creating, he, he is continuing his career as a, an economist and creating music at the same time and actually finishing records. And that's just fantastic. We're going to have to include some links in the show notes. So I'm just telling you right now, Linda, we're going to have a conversation about this and I, I hope that's going to be okay. I so appreciate that. And I know he will too. Yeah. <laughs> So, so Linda, one of the questions that we we often ask: Do you listen to music when you work? No, mm. almost yeah. never. 
Yeah. I want yeah. I want it to be really quiet. Not the radio, no music, no yeah. You Sometimes and Tim are you, you and Tim are together in there. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and which which is to say that Kurt is not in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> he, he as loud and as blurring as it can be. <laughs> no, no, that is not the case at all. And and the fact of the matter is, is I normally don't listen to music when I work, but I can. And and sometimes it's it's one of those pieces. And we find that with with other people that we've talked to. We've we've been asking this now for well over a year for for most of our guests. And and it's been a split. There's been lots of people who say no. There have been other people who deep kind of look at this from the perspective of what kind of work am I doing? Am I doing writing? Then no. If I'm doing analysis, that's kind of more mine. You know, I don't really have to think about it. It's just you know, busy work. Yeah. Then, totally. I, then I like having it. Um, and then others who are looking at this from the perspective of the type of music, I can listen to things that are don't have words and others who are saying I can listen to anything. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. But you you just like silence, period. No, that is not true, though, either. I, for the most part, I like silence. But I do, I you know, if it is very simple analysis where I really don't have to think much, then I think music can can um, can help. It, yeah. it helps. It, and if it's sort of boring work in that sense, you know, where you don't have to think, um, it can be boring work where you have to think and then it has to be quiet. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. So, so the yeah. Well, so what, what you find is is the difference between people who like music or have it on and others who don't. You know, we haven't been analyzing it, but we are. We're not working with Melanie. Melanie Brooks at Columbia University is doing some formal research on this. She and a and one of her students are doing some very formal work on the, the relationship between listening to music and work. And uh, in general, her early findings are that. That people, most people, tend to like some kind of non-vocal music in the background. In fact, that a loop of music and it is actually can be actually kind of productive um, okay. as a way to just kind of stimulate you and be just just totally noise. Basically, it becomes a white noise kind of a thing. Uh, but personality, I'm curious about the personality as well, Linda. I'm really curious about, are there certain types of people who are going to be more likely to want music versus not want music? Yeah. Uh, it, and not just in terms of habit, but, you know, like ocean, big, you know, big five type stuff. Are there personality right. aspects to it? Well, well, I, I, I think just, you know, looking back, I think every bald, um, you know, person that we asked liked music <laughs> like me. So I think maybe that's one of the dis- I don't. I'm joking now. That must be it. That must be it. Because I have such a, a full mane on, on my head. <laughs> totally different. Uh, this has been such a treat to talk to you. We are oh really goodness. grateful for your time and your insights. And we, gosh, we're so happy that you're doing the work that you're doing and hope you keep doing it. Well, I'm so happy to be here. And this was such a great conversation. And and yeah, thank you so much for, for having me on. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Linda, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our very poor but well-preyed-upon brains. Preyed over brains is probably a better way, not preyed upon, right? I mean, maybe they're preyed upon, but that has a different connotation than preyed two or over brains, but we're still poor. Then our brains are poor. Yes, it does. You know, I love, uh, we've been doing this 200 plus episodes and I never know what you're going to (laughs) say. I never know what I'm going to say. I never know what kind of shit's going to come right out of your mouth at that moment. And I love that. And it is shit. It is definitely (laughs) shit. That is for sure. So, all right. Um, But, but it wasn't shit. What we talked with Linda about, it was pretty dang cool i will have to say that the insights that she got are not necessarily surprising to me but they're really powerful so i think it's really cool to to get that level of insight and to know that yeah that happens and so now how do we how do we work with it so right cuz there's this 
uh, from a donor perspective, the idea of the of the contributors, the people who are going to make the donations, that thoughts and prayers are sort of seen as some kind of equivalency, right? That they crowd out the monetary values of of the contributions, and from a edit, you know, I, I can't help but not editorializing that. That just, it, I mean, it's good to feel comforted, right? Because we've we've talked about that there is research to support the fact that when someone is told that they're being prayed for, that they can, uh, especially, you know, if they're a believer, they can feel comforted, comforted yeah. by that. That's a good thing. We want, we need to feel comforted. I, I go back to uh, the the work that uh, some Jesuit friends of mine created a, a group called the Teatro de Fragua after the hurricanes to bring theater to uh, Central American countries. And they just had a little theater group that walked, that, you know, traveled around uh, to bring theatrical presentations to mm-hmm. lighten up our hearts. Humans need a whole variety of, of things, but none of those elevating, feeling good, feeling comforted things matter if I don't have any damn water or food. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they don't substitute for the actual things that we need to live, right? right yeah, right. there are some of those. And in disaster situations, those are vital in many times that you actually are, people's lives are at stake. And the idea that we can substitute thoughts and prayers for them as opposed to actual monetary or uh, contributions that would make a meaningful impact on their lived lives uh, is kind of scary that, that many people feel like, well, I prayed for them, therefore I don't need to give them any money because I have helped them out. And people believe that. And, and as you said, there is a comfort that people get from the, the thought that other people yeah. are praying for them. And there, there's value in that. But that value is not going to um, replace that food and water or shelter that they need. And there's a limit to, you know, if everybody just prayed and, and gave their thoughts and nobody gave money, that yeah. would be a bad thing. That would be a bad thing. We would we would have a lot more trouble if if people weren't giving actual money. And yet the recipients kind of suffer from the same thing. The recipients basically said, I'm willing to take less money if I know that there's someone praying for me. More particularly if it's a priest. Right. Right. <laughs> and, Which I found was really interesting. So that priest's yeah. prayers are more they're they're worth more. Well, and this is totally consistent with with the way religious organizations are set up. You know, I I grew up in a, in a Roman Catholic tradition, and um, having mom and dad pray for you is one thing, but having the priest pray for you is better. Having the the bishop pay for you is pray for you is even better. Having the cardinal pray for you is even better than that. And having the pope pray for you, holy cow, everything's going to work out great. I'm going to get everything that I need if the pope just prays for me. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's a there's a whole line that we could go down there, but um, but yeah, it it took me back to our conversation with Eric Oliver and this idea Mm. of these magical thinking that these powers beyond us. And granted, I know people truly, truly believe this that there are these powers beyond us and that we can call upon those powers. And there is some magical uh, thinking that we can impact people's lives through just our thoughts and prayers. And, you know, that's a real thing for people and we have to understand that. And I think that's uh, something that I don't necessarily grasp from in my own personal life and my own personal beliefs. Yeah, but there are people out there that believe that. And, Absolutely, and so you know, looking and understanding this, I think, is a really interesting and key piece into why we behave the way we behave and why certain people behave differently in these types of situations versus others. So, yeah, and I I don't want to disparage anyone's religious beliefs. My concern is that if recipients of, of thoughts and prayers versus donations are willing to say, I'll take less money or less food or less water in exchange for thoughts and prayers, um, especially if it comes from a priest, I'm concerned about someone's well-being in, mm. in, this, in this regard. 
Um, that that just doesn't feel like a great exchange. Right. It's kind of like if I wanted to eat an Oreo cookie and <laughs> I had to, you forced me to read the label about the fat content and calories inside of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. What did Linda say? You are strategically enabling yourself to make risky choices. Right? Oh, yes. The, my risky Oreo addiction. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it was just, it was, a, it was a, that was a trying to transition into willful ignorance, which I find, uh, again, this is one of those pieces that is just contrary to this rational way that I like to think about how we act, but I know it happens and I do it and other people do it. And it would be great if we, you know, maybe didn't do it as much. Yeah, I I grew up with it. I mean, it, it was taught to me to be willfully ignorant. My my dad used to say, and I, I grew up on a farm outside of, um, outside of St. Louis and Whenever I'd be trying to convince him of something, he would say, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. <laughs> he, he, you know, he was, he was training me, you know, he was letting me know that, uh, that his predisposition was going to crowd out, you know, he was going to uh, employ willful ignorance at yeah. that moment. So, so just, just stop, stop your arguing at that point. Well, it creates, right. If we have facts that are contrary to our beliefs, then that creates cognitive dissonance, which mm -hmm. creates a painful experience for us that we don't like. And so one of the ways to avoid cognitive dissonance is to ignore the facts that are on go. the ground that are contrary to those beliefs that we hold or to distort them in ways that they then, you know, aren't as, as bad. So it, we didn't talk about this with Linda, but I thought it might be worthwhile to talk about the difference between willful ignorance and self-deception mm. because there is a difference. And when we talk about willful ignorance, we're talking about uh, neglecting information on how your actions would affect others or yourself. It's And frankly, it, it's less harmful uh, than outright self-deception, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and self-deception is more of that lying to yourself or distorting those facts yeah. in such a way that it'll make you feel better. Um, and and the, the worry with self-deception is that you start believing your own lies, right? Yeah. Willful yeah. ignorance is, is the idea that, all right, I'm just not, I, I'm not going to look at the calorie count on the Oreo box. Because I know that if I look, then I'm going to have this cognitive dissonance is going to make me think about this. And so I'm just willfully ignoring the information that is out there. Right. Self-deception is looking at that calorie and then distorting those. Oh, well, 180 calories isn't bad. You know, I got 2000 a day and different things. And then distorting how that actually impacts your life or others' lives and doing various different pieces around it. So yeah, yeah, I could I could exchange the 180 calories that I'm going to have in this ice cream for the 180 calories that I would get in the in the spinach and be equally as healthy. Like that's just outright lying to yourself. Mm -hmm, exactly. Or the fact that if I eat, you know, uh, it's 180 calories, but that's for three cookies, and and I had six, but you know, it's really just that's just really still 180 calories. So I'm not that worried about <laughs> right. it. Right. Uh, it it put me in mind of some work that Francesca Gino did uh, on the temporal view of costs and benefits of self-deception, and this this study was so interesting to me because she's they they set up two conditions. One uh, condition where the students had the answers to the test in advance of taking the test. And then another condition where the students just had to take the test. And of course, those that had the answers first, well, they did better. Right? Oh my gosh, they did? Yeah. Well, I but, hope they did. But that the, the big aha in their research was then after they take the, after they take the test and they get their scores, and of course, guess what? Those who had the answers first uh, did better. And then they say, well, now we're going to take another test. How do you think you're going to do? Those who, who cheated, who actually had the answers first and did better on the test, had this, this misguided self-perception that they were going to do better on the test, on the I'm next smarter test. smarter because I scored, I got an A on that last test. 
That's right. I must be super bright and brilliant. Therefore, I'm going to do good on this next test. And that's just bullshit because <laughs> that's just that just didn't happen. You know, in in the study when they took the when they took the next test, guess what? They all did about the same, whether you had the answers on the previous test or not. You know, those six cookies are only 180 calories. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy when you think about that. And willful ignorance is bad. Self-deception is worse. But if we could lessen the number of times that we are willfully ignorant or that we self-deceive ourselves, would, would we have a better life? You know, because some of this is obviously being done to save us angst from that cognitive dissonance that we would yeah. we'd feel. Yeah. And I think it comes down to, do we want to live? It's what uh, Annie Duke said, right? Do we want to be feel like we're right? Or do we want to know the truth about the, the world? And feeling that we're right makes us feel good. But in the long run, it leads to a whole bunch of issues. And knowing the truth about the world may hurt in the short term but in the long term is much better. But you bring this up, right? You, you, we talked about this a little bit before we got on the, on the air here, is you talked about child abuse, right? And this, this idea that many of us are just maybe not self-deception about this, but willfully ignorant about the impact of child abuse. And you said, what, there's 700,000 cases of child abuse that are reported each year? And that's reported. So that right. doesn't even take into account the unreported cases. Um, and so I think we're often willfully ignorant of these big societal changes or negative impacts. Like that seems overwhelming. And what can we do about it? And so it's painful for me, but being willfully ignorant that that's out there, it doesn't help the situation, remedy the situation in any way. Yeah. 700,000 cases of child abuse a year is more deaths than we've had from COVID in the last year. Yeah. It's not always deaths with those child abuse cases, just to make no, that's not right. what you're saying. No, but, that, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying because that, that's not what I'm saying, but that's any child that gets abused is horrible. Yeah. And, and again, just to reinforce your comment, that's reported. So there's, it's likely that there are many more mm. that, that go unreported. And to be, I mean, in order for me to get by each day, I, it's really hard. For, it would be very difficult for me to think about that every day because that would crush me, right? So a little bit of willful ignorance might keep me sort of sane. On the other hand, if I don't sort of break the seal on what that, that little bubble looks like, I'm never going to act. I'm never going to do anything. But, and this is the part where it just becomes this, not a slippery slope, I don't want to say that, but this idea of, all right, you have child abuse, you have climate change, you have uh, nuclear proliferation and potential, you know, yeah. Uh, biological war, you have uh, fake news and disinformation uh, campaigns, You a number of different things that you could look at and just say, this is serious, this is important, and we ought to do something about it. But we can't. We can't take that on. We can't solve the entire world's problems in any individual. And so, to the degree that we're willfully ignorant on some of these, I think is probably a measure that creates our, helps save our own sanity. But the idea that maybe we should be paying more attention to at least a few of these in our lives. And we just had a conversation um, on, a, on another episode that'll be coming out um, shortly with uh, Allison um, Zelkowitz. Zelkowitz, who is working at Save, with, with Save the Children. And again, the amount of impact that they have on, on making great positive impacts on children's lives throughout the world, this idea that if you can help just a few children, that's a few children more than 
that wouldn't have been helped if you didn't take that that thing. And it goes back up to this whole thing of thoughts and prayers or sending money. And can we make an impact by sending that $10, that $20, that $100, that $1,000, whatever it would be. And yeah, we can't do that maybe for everything that we would like to, but if we can do it for a few things, then that's making a difference. Well said. Groovers, we've got a bonus track coming up here in just a second. So hang with us and uh, and we'll close out this episode with a bonus track. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. In this episode, we talked with Linda Toonstrom about some research she conducted after Hurricane Florence in 2018. She was curious about whether potential donors consider thoughts and prayers as they might consider a monetary donation. And on the receiving end, she wanted to find out if a Christian disaster victim might want thoughts and prayers more than they'd want money. Her results indicated that thoughts and prayers as donations do crowd out monetary gifts to those in need. And she found the recipients were willing to give up some amount of money if they knew that they'd be prayed for, especially if that prayer came from a priest. We also talked about willful ignorance and how it crowds out critical thinking that can enable us to make good decisions in a complex world. Although willful ignorance is a powerful evolutionary tool that helped earlier humans deal with terrible conditions, it's still something that matters today. We hope that you found her comments thought-provoking, which is why we've got this particular groove idea for the week. Consider Linda's example of an intentionally avoiding the label on the ice cream and think about what you might be willfully ignorant of in your life. It might be the food or the energy that you consume or the poor in your town or those who are suffering from addiction in the darkest hours of, of the pandemic. Very few among us will make a dramatic change in our lives and never eat ice cream again, and even fewer can save millions or thousands or hundreds or even a few just by engaging in and something that most of us are ignoring on a daily basis. Frankly, it would be too much to bear if we tried to address the gravity of some of these large-scale societal issues. But consider doing something, maybe maybe just one thing, maybe just one time to make a single contribution. Make a sandwich for someone who's hungry. Offer a ride to someone who just missed their bus. Maybe you'll find that a single act that overscores our natural desire to be blind could bring you some peace today. It might actually help another person too. And maybe you'll look at that ice cream container the next time you're in the market, and maybe you'll decide just to not buy it. Just this once. Give it a try. With that, Groovers, it's time to say thank you for listening and to wrap up this episode of Behavioral Grooves. We hope that this week you go out and find your groove. Mm -hmm.